following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. I'm ready to sell Ginzu knives at the fair now. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Doug Miguel. I run a meditation center in Rochester, Minnesota. Many of you are friends uh, and others I've not met yet, but just want to introduce myself. Um, I've been coming to Common Ground for six years, seven years, something like that. Yeah, I started in 2004 and have always considered this to be home base, the mothership. And uh, so I'm really delighted to be here and thank you very much for the invitation to come up and give this Dharma talk and to sit with you. So the theme of tonight's talk is the Buddha's last word. And I picked that uh, title and that theme because I just finished teaching an eight-week course on mindfulness with breathing with a former monk who was well known to uh, people at Common Ground named Santi Caro. He was a, a monk in the Thai forest tradition for about 20 years and returned maybe six or seven years ago. He's running a retreat center in Wisconsin and he specializes in uh, and got to know through his teacher, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, um, this particular meditation technique called Anapanasati, mindfulness with breathing. And we did an eight-week course and I gave the last Dharma talk in the course. I was alternating with Santi Caro. And I was trying to think of a theme to kind of wrap things up. And I recalled that the Buddha gave a very short, pithy instruction at the very end of his life, the very last words he spoke. And I thought that that, that, those really, that one specific pithy instruction at the end really uh, gave a kind of shape to his entire life and it gave a kind of shape to all of his meditation instructions as well. And it helped me to understand Anapanasati. And so I, I used the theme in my Thursday night talk in Rochester, and I'm repeating it here tonight. I want to start by telling a little story. Some of you may have heard it uh, about Pope John XXIII, who, who was a pope who really changed a lot of the Catholic uh, liturgy. And um, he, he tells this story about um, really fretting and worrying about all the changes that he was instituting and uh, you know, waking up at night and sort of being dreamy and sleepy and worried and, and in that sort of half dreamy state saying to himself, you know, I really need to talk to the Pope about this. <laughs> and then when he woke up, he'd go, wait a minute, I am the Pope. And the reason I'm starting with that little humorous story is because there's a, there's a quality in there that's very apropos, I think, to, um, to each of us as we reach the kind of critical moment in our own meditating lives and in our own spiritual lives when we say to ourselves, holy smokes, I might have used another word, but I'm sitting up here, I've got to do this on my own. You know, it's up to me. I've read a zillion Dharma books. I've gone to so many retreats. I go to Common Ground every Sunday night and every Tuesday night. I took the course on 
Satipatthana Sutta, but ultimately, oh my God, where am I at? It's up to me. And, uh, you know, it's about, so this talk is about that moment and what do you do at, at that point? And what guidelines, what guidelines can you summon from then on to take what you've learned and make it real? So it's just not book learning. That's what the Buddha's last words were about. You know, there's the question from then on of how do you measure your progress, if measurement makes any sense, you know, in terms of spiritual growth or your progress, if the word progress makes any sense, in a relative sense, both these words do matter, and how do you how do you carry on from there? Uh, in my experience, at some point, you really need to do two things with all the book learning and all the retreats and all the lessons. And the two things are, number one, you need to essentialize. For example, that Anapanasati method has 16 steps to it. Um, well, that's a lot. And what's the logic behind those steps? You know, you really need to boil it down because when, you, when you're sitting here or when you're out there and you're trying to make your way, you, you have to work from an essential, clear logic to you that works for you. Not what the book said would work, but what works for you. So you need to essentialize all these teachings so they're simple and they fit in your pocket and you can walk around with them and use them whenever you need. And so the second thing after essentializing is kind of related, but you need to customize to you because not everything that is taught works for you. That's why in my guided meditation I was, I was stressing whatever works for you in the way of posture to strike that zone between being relaxed and alert. Experiment with that, notice what works for you, and use those. So that's the process of customization. So I think you need to essentialize and you need to customize. And um, this too is something that the Buddha talked about in his last words which I will read eventually, but I'm holding out for a little bit. I just want there to be a little dramatic tension in this talk. Um, so, uh, there are four different ways that I thought uh, I, I, I might offer uh, for this process of essentializing and customizing. Um, and... Um, they, they address, um, you know, the kind of natural barrier. I, I, I wanted to throw that in before I got to the first example. There, there are kind of natural barriers that, that um, make it difficult for us to essentialize and customize. And one I think I already mentioned was like the 16 steps. And those of you who've been uh, reading and learning about the Dharma for a while, you know, there's the Eightfold Path, and there's the three characteristics, and there's the five hindrances, and... Um, there's the ten fetters, and I could go on. Um, what? I thought meditation was supposed to be simple. Um, so there's a barrier right there, unless one adjusts uh, thinking a little bit. Uh, secondly, um, uh, very much so in this um, tradition that we work in here, uh, we're working um, through the Pali language, which was an ancient and now extinct um, uh, Indian language. Uh, and then to English from Pali, 
and then from the English language to our own experience. So sometimes, for example, in the Anapanasati method, it says we're supposed to, as we breathe in and breathe out, we're supposed to look for piti. Well, what's piti? Oh, it's joy. That's how it's usually translated. But some people call it contentment, and some people call it rapture. So what is it? And how do we know that in ourselves, that we're experiencing joy when we breathe in and when we breathe out? What is piti, really? See? So there's this process that we need to go through to understand what the Buddha is really talking about. So it's translation. Uh, back to our own felt and known experience. So we can start to be skillful with our own repertoire. Our own experiential repertoire. So there's, there's something we need to work through. And then finally, if you really look at it, the, instru the actual instructions for meditation given by the Buddha are pretty brief and sketchy. So the 16 steps in Anapanasati are about, you, they can be written out in two lines per step pretty much. So that's like 32 lines. And some people even boil it down to one line. So it's 16 lines. But like for instance, there's the instruction to feel joy as you breathe in and joy as you breathe out. But the Buddha doesn't go on to say what joy is. He just says, breathe in knowing joy. And so there's some detective work to figure out what he meant. So, um, so there are these, these issues that face each one of us as individual meditators in our spiritual lives. Okay, so now to the four examples that I'd like to offer for this process of essentialization and customization. And the first one I want to offer uh, comes from, uh, I'm just going to read a brief account of the Buddha's last day that's offered by Thich Nhat Hanh in his biography of the Buddha called Old Path, White Clouds. And I'm going to read it because there, I think there are really strong clues given by the Buddha and by the people who told the story of his last day about how to do this process of customizing for ourselves. So after 40 years of teaching the Dharma, the Buddha kind of wrapped it all up in his last day, in his last hours, in his last line. So I'd like to just read these few little stories um, that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote down to see if we might find out about how we can personalize and understand in this really essential way the Buddha's uh, instructions about the path to the end of suffering. So here's... Um, here, here are a few uh, little stories um, from the Buddha's last day by Thich Nhat Hanh. And it starts here, the last chapter. It was dusk by the time the Buddha and the bhikkhus reached the forest of sal trees. Bhikkhus meaning monks. The Buddha asked Ananda to prepare a place between two sal trees for him to lie down. Ananda was his trusty servant and main attendant who followed him for about 30 years and critically was not an enlightened person during the Buddha's lifetime, whereas a lot of monks in the, in the Buddha's retinue were getting enlightened right and left. Ananda, who was with the Buddha all the time and listened to all his sermons and memorized them, never got enlightened during the Buddha's lifetime. So the Buddha asked Ananda to prepare a place between two sal trees for him to lie down. The Buddha lay on his side, his head facing north. 
All the bhikkhus sat around him. They knew the Buddha would pass into nirvana that same night. The Buddha looked up at the trees and said, Ananda, look, it is not yet spring, but the sal trees are covered with red blossoms. Do you see the petals falling on the Tathagata's robes and the robes of all the bhikkhus? Tathagata is another word for the Buddha. This forest is truly beautiful. Do you see the western horizon all aglow from the setting sun? Do you hear the gentle breeze rustling in the sal branches? The Tathagata finds all these things lovely and touching. Bhikkhus, if you want to please me, if you want to express your respect and gratitude to the Tathagata, there is only one way, and that is by living the teaching. The evening was warm, and the venerable Upavana stood over the Buddha to fan him, but the Buddha asked him not to. Perhaps the Buddha did not want his splendid view of the setting sun obstructed. The Buddha asked the venerable Anuruddha, I do not see Ananda. Where is he? Another bhikkhu spoke up. I saw brother Ananda standing behind some trees weeping. He was saying to himself, I have not yet attained my spiritual goal, and now my teacher is dying. Who, who has ever cared more deeply for me than my teacher? The Buddha asked the bhikkhu to summon Ananda. The Buddha tried to comfort Ananda. He said, Don't be so sad, Ananda. The Tathagata has often reminded you that all dharmas are impermanent. With birth there is death. With arising there is dissolving. With coming together there is separation. How can there be birth without death? How can there be arising without dissolving? How can there be coming together without separation? Ananda, you have cared for me with all your heart for many years. You have devoted all your efforts to helping me, and I am most grateful to you. Your merit is great, Ananda, but you can even go farther. If you make just a little more effort, you can overcome birth and death. You can attain freedom and transcend every sorrow. I know you can do that, and that is what would make me the most happy. And then there's another big, thick paragraph where, Ananda go, where the Buddha goes on to praise Ananda in front of all the monks. He spoke, speaks about Ananda again at length, about what a, what a devoted servant he is how there could be no better servant than Ananda. And the next thing that happens is that an ascetic <coughs> comes up to Ananda and asks him, because the Ananda, Ananda is the gateway to the Buddha, he says, I would like to be ordained. And Ananda says, no, the Buddha is busy now. <laughs> you know, can't happen. But the Buddha sees or hears that this monk has come up and he says, no, Ananda, I'll, I'll receive this guy. And so there's a little story told here about taking this ascetic and ordaining him. And there's a little exchange between the Buddha and the ascetic that's quite interesting, I think. Because the ascetic says, uh, he wants to ask the Buddha a question. This is before he gets ordained, but he wants to ask the Buddha a question. He says, Lord, I have heard about spiritual leaders such as Purana Kasapa, Makali Gasala, and several other ones. I would like to ask if, according to you, any of them attain true enlightenment. The Buddha answered, Subhadda, whether or not they attain enlightenment is not a necessary thing to discuss right now. Subhadda, the Tathagata, will show you the path by which you yourself can attain enlightenment. And then he goes on to explain the Eightfold Path. And then there's this famous section where three different times the Buddha asked the monks, monks, I'm about to pass away. Do you have any questions at all about my teachings? And 
The first time he asks, silence. And the second time he asks, silence. And the third time he asks, silence. And then he says, okay, and here comes the big line. The Buddha looked quietly over the community and then said, Bhikkhus, listen to what the Tathagata now says. Dharmas are impermanent. If there is birth, there is death. Be diligent in your efforts to attain liberation. The Buddha closed his eyes. He had spoken his last words. The earth shook. Sal blossoms fell like rain. Everyone felt their minds and bodies tremble. They knew the Buddha had passed into nirvana. Does anybody have any ideas about why the first thing that happens in that story is the Buddha remarking on how beautiful the sunset is and how you know, asking Ananda, do you see how the sal tree petals are falling on my robe? And just noticing the beautiful nature around him. That's the first thing that happens. That's the, traditionally the first thing that's recounted, is the Buddha just noticing the sky, the weather, nature. Well, anyway, it's worth reflecting on right there, isn't it? It's so simple. It's a simple, simple thing. Um, so I'm just uh, pointing that out, and to me, if I reflect on that, um, and I'll, I'll just offer my my reflections. But I think you know the theme of this is really personalizing. So I'd really encourage you, having listened to that profound story, you might ask yourself, what is this story telling me about how I can practice, and w w you know how can I simplify, and get to the point where you know I can really use these teachings um, and have them be a vital part of my life besides when I drove up I tonight I was looking at the sky here and the ground here and I was thinking about these teachings and I was a little bit blissful I have to say I was feeling blissful thinking about the sky as mind and the earth as body and like as if I were looking at my own mind and noticing the impermanence of the clouds and the impermanence of my breath. That's just how I was looking at it. And um, it seemed like the teaching was coming through to me right there. I often think when I meditate that my breath is actually like the wind and I this, I'm just relating how I do it. I'm not saying it's for you at all. I'm just saying how I personalize it. I like to look at my breath as the wind, as if it were just passing through me. And sometimes my, the body, my bodily sensations are a little bit like watching a crackling fire. And you know how you can watch a crackling fire and get a little bit mesmerized, but also just kind of get into a philosophical state of mind where you're calm and there's sort of nothing but you and nature. I think the Buddha was saying... Reflect upon nature. It's important. It's important. A lot of lessons there. And I also personally really like, right, the fact that all throughout the afternoon, the stress was not on enlightenment. The stress was on Ananda and Subhadda, the ascetic, who was trying to 
get ordained. And the Buddha actually saying that it's not important to ask questions about enlightenment. What's important is to personalize and figure it out for yourself. There was also a line in here where he says, the, the Ananda said, um, Lord, please don't pass away here, because he was in this little town called Kusanara. Venerable Ananda wiped his tears and said, Lord, please don't pass away here. Kusanara is just a small town of mud dwellings. There are so many more worthy places like Sampa, Rajagaha, Savati, and, and Saketa, Kosambi, or Varanasi. Please, Lord, select such a place to pass away so that more people will have a chance to see your face one last time. And um, so he was you know, worried about Kusanara being a small town of mud dwellings. And when I read that line, I see, Lord, please don't pass away here. Rochester is just a small town <laughs> of mud dwellings. And the Buddha says, no. Kusanara is important. Rochester is important. Uh, the um, another way to essentialize the practice, I think, and these comments will, I think, maybe uh, speak m most to people who've taken that course on the Satipatthana Sutta or have read, read to the point, or have experienced the point um, where they run across the, the categorization of human experience into what the Buddha calls the four uh, foundations for mindfulness. So the Buddha basically teaches in several, several places that there are four places where it is wholesome and skillful to place your attention in meditation that lead to the calming of the mind and the arising of wisdom. And those are handy summary statements about what to do with, with the mind during meditation. And those, those places are the body and the breath, that's the one. The second is feelings, our pleasant and unpleasant sensations. Um, the third is the mind, thoughts, opinions, views, whatever is going through the mind. And the fourth is called dharmas, which is explained in different ways, but a good way to think about it is to look at the first three from a different perspective, from the perspective of impermanence. So you look back at the body and the breath and notice the impermanence. And you look back at sensations, pleasant and unpleasant, and you notice their impermanence. And you look at the mind and its thoughts and you notice, you notice the impermanence. Um, a way to a kind of, and then the Anapanasati method of uh, mindfulness with breathing actually directs the attention through these 16 steps sequentially from body to feelings to mind to dharmas. And a way to kind of summarize that um, is that you go from just basically sitting down and relaxing, taking some deep breaths, getting centered. And the first 12 steps, which is three-fourths of the meditation, is really all about just getting centered and calm and relaxed. It's calming the body, calming the feelings, calming the mind. And then using the calm that we get to examine deeper. And, um, you know, that process, even though it's carved up into 16 steps, is actually something that can be shortened to, 
to, by any of us at any time to just get calm, relax the body and the mind, and then look at impermanence in our experience, where you know, in the in the body, the feelings, and the mind. You know, and that's essentially what we do. Whether we're doing nine days of retreat or nine minutes sitting in our back porch. There is a natural progression um, to meditation that it's important for us to feel intuitively. I'm going to read just a little bit from um, this book that Santi Caro wrote called Mindfulness with Breathing, and it's, it's the summation of his teaching on the meditation methods that really speaks to this point of how to customize those 16 steps. But it, again, it, it doesn't matter if it's 16 or 32 or whatever system you've learned. I mean, the, the essential teaching about customization and, and essentialization is right here. And um, where Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu says, once you fully understand the entire 16 steps, or, or however many, you can abridge them for yourself. Decrease them until you are satisfied enough to practice with confidence. You might end up with two steps, or five steps, or whatever suits you. This is our purpose in the way we explain Anapanasati. We explain the system of practice in full, then you can shorten it for yourself, depending on what pleases you. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds pretty liberating to me. And here he actually, he actually uh, telescopes the entire 16 steps into two steps here. He says, if some people feel that 16 steps are too much, that's all right. It is possible to condense the 16 steps down to two steps. One, train the mind to be adequately and properly concentrated by calming it and focusing it, which is what we're doing in our guided meditation tonight. And two, with that concentration, skip over to contemplating impermanence. He actually adds two others. One is suffering and not self. Those are the three, the three things. But you know, you can even boil that down to impermanence. So I think those are helpful kind of uh, shortenings down to the uh, to, down to the essence. Did anybody else have any thoughts about what, what lessons you might take from that story of the Buddha's last day and how, it, how, how you would personalize it? Yeah. Well, my initial thought would be some of the sadness of the essence of the teaching just being moment to moment presence. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're alive, you're alive, and when you're dead, you're dead. You know, he would never answer questions about death or the imponderables. It wasn't there yet. So I just see it as, as kind of a, a core teaching of presence, moment awareness. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? 
face of that cessation of his experience on this earth, he contacts something that's happening has its own destiny, so to speak, uh -huh. whatever the source. And that uh -huh. is reassuring. The world will go on, uh -huh. and I'm part of that. And so it's a, oh, it's a yeah. taking away from the loss into something that is reassuringly present. Oh, yeah, right. That's beautiful. Thank you. Nature gets you out of your head. Yeah. Yeah. Were you saying that you can feel no attachment when you see nature sometimes? That you can actually experience that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. That's kind of the ultimate, isn't it? Is, is that state of pleasure without attachment or unpleasantness without attachment. So you're saying just looking at nature is a good way to immediately experience that. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, great. Those are one, These are wonderful insights, I think. And every one of you has, I think, just gone straight to wisdom here, you know. Uh, and uh, through, that, through that little simple story. So, so let's go a little deeper into those last words uh, of the Buddhas. Uh, Tishnat Han, um, his, uh, his rendition of them was, was a little different from uh, kind of the kind of mainstream Theravadan. Uh, he wrote, um, the way he rendered them is, uh, Dharmas are impermanent. If there is birth, there is death. Be diligent in your efforts to attain liberation. Uh, a little bit more of a mainstream Theravadan rendition of his of the Buddha's last words are: All conditioned things are subject to decay. Strive on diligently. You hear little variations here and there in the Theravadan, but that's basically the gist of it. All conditioned things are subject to decay; they are impermanent. Strive on diligently. Sometimes it's added for your own liberation. Um, for those of you who are a little bit into Pali, the actual words are Vayadama Sankara, Apamadina Sambhateta. 
Sampadeta. Vaya Dhamma is, Dhammas are sort of, well, let's go back. Sankara as conditioned things. Vaya Dhamma, uh, Dhammas are subject to decay. Apama Dena is diligence. And Sampadeta is to is succeed. And the word I, I want to stress here that, that kind of, I think, uh, releases a special insight is apamada, which is apamadena in the, in the context of the sentence. And it's the word that is usually uh, translated as diligently. And it's worth stressing, I think, because it's the one word in the sentence that actually tells us how to meditate or what is the quality of mind that you want when you, when you meditate. And, um, you know, it's a word that shows up from time to time in the original uh, Buddhist texts. And um, uh, it's interesting to do a little bit of uh, linguistic um, uh, etymology on that word to see what it really is. Because, like, you know, it, it's the one quality that you uh, want to bring to it. There are... Um, in support of the idea of how important this particular quality of mind is, there are several um, places in the in the Buddhist suttas that speak to this. The Dhammapada is actually filled with references to apamada on how important it is. Uh, for example, one of the one of the phrases, one of the verses in the Dhammapada is uh, heedfulness. That's how uh, uh, apamada is often translated. Heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness, the path to death. The heedful do not die. The heedless are as if already dead. So that makes it a pretty important quality. And there's another um, of the early writings that talks about Apamata this way. Just as all the footprints of living beings are surpassed by the footprint of the elephant, and the footprint of the elephant is considered as the mightiest among them, just so have all the meritorious qualities alertness as their foundation, and alertness is considered the mightiest of these qualities. Alertness being another way to translate apamada. Actually, um, if you really go to the, the, the Pali scholars who are looking at strict uh, etymology as opposed to um, translating directly into uh, language that works possibly better in a meditative setting, um, pamada, it means drunk. And ah is a, is a negative prefix. So apamata is not drunk or sober. And so there's a strong sense here that the quality that one wants to bring to meditation is sobriety or clarity of mind, um, non-distractedness. And... Um, and that one wants to bring this not just to the mind, but to all the senses. So um, the Buddha often talks about um, guarding the sense doors. The idea being that, in a sense, those of us who are distracted or unmindful are basically drunk six different ways. We're drunk with our eyes that are always seeking form for pleasure. And with our ears, always seeking beautiful sounds to ravish our 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 sensorium and our fingers and, and our touch is always wanting to be intoxicated with a good feeling. 
uh, and so on with all the senses, including the mind wanting to be uh, intoxicated with all the things that intoxicate the mind, such as big, juicy, complex problems, you know, that can just sort of take us away through our endless uh, attempts to solve uh, the complexity and explain the complexity. So the quality that one wants to um, to bring to meditation is the opposite of all that, a kind of settledness and a clarity um, that actually means, uh, so that could be quite literally translated as sober or not drunk. So one could almost say, uh, or could almost translate the Buddha's last words as, all conditioned things are subject to decay. Strive on with a diligent sobriety. That might be a, a fair uh, translation. And there's one other, I think, um, very helpful text that, that talks to what is Apamata that um, appeals to many of us who, who like this particular path and who might be familiar with the, uh, the so-called Kalama Sutta, where what's sometimes called the, the Buddha's charter of uh, free inquiry. Um, so this is actually called, a similar sutta is called the Nandiya Sutta, where one of Buddha's monks came to him and said, um, uh, Lord, would you please explain apamata and, and what is this, this quality? And here's what the Buddha answered to the monk, uh, Nandiya. The Blessed One said, And how, Nandiya, does a disciple of the Noble Ones live heedlessly? That would be apamata, heedless, heedlessness. There is the case where a disciple of the Noble Ones is endowed with verified confidence in the Awakened One. Indeed, the Blessed One is worthy and rightly self-awakened, consummate in knowledge and conduct, well gone, an expert with regard to the world, unexcelled as a trainer for those people fit to be tamed, the teacher of divine and human beings, awakened, blessed. Content with that, verified confidence in the Awakened One, he does not exert himself further in solitude by day or seclusion by night. Right? So... He's content that the Blessed One has all the answers and he's following them. For him, living thus heedlessly, there is no joy. There being no joy, there is no rapture. There being no rapture, there is no serenity. There being no serenity, he dwells in pain. When pain, the mind does not become centered. When the mind is uncentered, phenomena do not become manifest. When phenomena are not manifest, he is reckoned simply as one who dwells heedlessly. Papamata. So that leaves the question of the person who uh, uh, has apamata, and what is that? And to that, the Buddha answers, and, and how, Nadia, does a disciple of the Noble Ones live heedfully? There is a case where a disciple of the Noble Ones is endowed with verified confidence in the Awakened One, not content with that verified confidence in the Awakened One. Okay, not content with that verified confidence in the Awakened One, he exerts himself further in solitude by day or seclusion by night. For him, living thus heedfully, joy arises. In one who has joy, rapture arises. In one who has rapture, the body becomes serene. When the body is serene, one feels pleasure. Feeling pleasure, the mind becomes centered. When the mind is centered, phenomena become manifest. When phenomena are manifest, he is reckoned as one who dwells heedfully. So... So there we have another quality of Apamata. It's that quality that, that one summons when one gets to the point where the teacher is, you know, one 
one reaches that point that I talked about right at the beginning of, you know what? The teacher's not going to take me all the way. That's, and then what do you do? That's when Appamata comes in. It's, it's, the, it's got courage. It's got, it's got uh, kind of skillful desire. It's, got, it's ardent, a word often used. And it is just so strengthened by a, a, a want to be free that just pushes one on. And um, that's, to me, that's what the Buddha is saying here. That, um, you know, in his very last words, he says, you know, strive on diligently. And at, on, one, at, on the one hand, that sounds almost like cliche. It's like, okay, carry on, try hard. Then you look a little deeper, you look at the etymology, you look at what it means um, uh, in, 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 to some of the commentators. And I think it yields a sense of the Buddha's last words that are uh, useful to us who ask ourselves the questions, what do we do when the teachings uh, sometimes seem dry or just come to a point where we realize we've got to bring in our own resources to carry on and go all the way. So. Those are some, some thoughts on the Buddha's last words. And um, we have some time for Q&A or discussion, if you would like, or any reflections on, um, on the Buddha's last words, on the Buddha's last day. scholar uh, to know if they did all reach enlightenment on that evening. I'm not sure they did. Did you hear that in what Thich Nhat Hanh said? Um, not sure about that. I'll, I'll read you. Oh, no, I, I'll read. Yeah. He said, here, here's what, because on each occasion, um, there was actually a reason why the, the Buddha kind of interpolated why there was silence. So I'll read you what he interpolated there as to why there was silence. So the first time he asked, he asked them about this was, Bhikkhus, if you have any doubts or perplexity concerning the teaching, now is the time to ask the Tathagata about it. Don't let this opportunity pass by so that later you will report, reproach yourself saying, that day I was face to face with the Buddha, but I did not ask him. The Buddha repeated these words three times, but no Bhikkhu spoke. Venerable Ananda exclaimed, Lord, it is truly wonderful. I have faith in the community of bhikkhus. I have faith in the Sangha. Everyone has clearly understood your teaching. No one has any doubts or perplexity about your teaching and the path to realize it. The Buddha said, 
Ananda, you speak from faith, while the Tathagata has direct knowledge. The Tathagata knows that all the bhikkhus here possess deep faith in the three gems, the Buddha, the Sangha, and the Dhamma. Even the lowest attainment among these bhikkhus is that of stream enterer. So that's a... I don't think I actually read that the first time, but you know that, that's saying that they're that they that they're on the path to enlightenment but haven't been enlightened. Stream entry is like, okay, you're only going. I think the technical thing is you're only going to return to life seven times, something like that, or three or something. That's stream entry. So they're not actually enlightened, but they're well on the way. And as I read this now, I see that that Petitna Han has actually telescoped those three different times, you know, into 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 one, um, and he has Ananda saying that the reason why people um, why the why the monks have monks have asked questions is um, uh, the faith in the community of bhikkhus. I have faith in the sangha. Everyone has clearly understood your teaching. No one has any doubts or perplexity, and the path to realize it. And the Buddha said, Ananda, you speak from faith, while the Tathagata has direct knowledge. Yeah. As I read this in relation to the Nandiya Sutta, I'm, I think that the Buddha is also saying, you know, faith, yes, but keep trying. You have to go more than faith. You can't just have faith in me. You have to try. And I think that's the key thing in, in, with the word apamada, striving diligently, is go beyond the faith, just the simple, blind, simple blind faith, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where I thought. Yeah, let's go. Oh, I see what you're saying. Here's here's what here's what um, Tishnathan says, and this is a you know an interpretation. But he writes, the Buddha closed his eyes. He had spoken his last words. The earth shook. Sal blossoms fell like rain. Everyone felt their minds and bodies tremble. They knew the Buddha had passed into nirvana. That's it. That's that's it. Yeah. Does anybody know? Has anyone, and from a scholarly understanding, or? My understanding is that most of the community is quite sad. Um, Ananda did achieve enlightenment, but it's a while later. I don't know about the other monks, but mm-hmm. the sadness would kind of, I mean, at least to me, imply that they weren't enlightened. But I certainly don't know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think so. And as I read it, read it over, I think the Buddha is saying there that everyone here is a stream enterer, which in this sequence, which in this um, system is, like I said, it's sort of like training wheels. Um, they're on their way, but they're not there yet. And you're right. Ananda wasn't enlightened until until later, until after uh, after the Buddha's death. Yeah. To me, that the whole term enlightenment is such an incongruity. Capturing the grasp of that means, and who is the one who is applying the seal of enlightenment? And so that the question in mind may be helpful, so that so not to become too complacent. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's a really good point to raise. Then that actually draws attention to the earlier passage in this very story, where the Buddha said in his last in his last hour, it's not important to ask about whether so and so is enlightened. You know, that's what he told the ascetic who was seeking ordination, and he asked that specific question. Oh, this monk who says he's enlightened, is he really? That monk, is he really? And the Buddha said, not important. Has anyone else, does anyone have any um, examples or um, ways that they themselves have kind of essentialized or um, uh, kind of customized their, their practice that they would be willing to share? That have sort of opened the practice in a real living, direct way for you? Yeah. I can just share a process of centralizing. On the last month, I think one of the talks was focused on that only. And I just struggle with that word. I mean, I keep being finding this. Say the word gratitude. What what do you feel? steps in the 16-step method where the Buddha actually says to trigger that bubbling process. You know? I mean, that's actually a part of the um, uh, th that process of calming the mind and centering the mind and also clarifying so one can really see what's going on in the mind and body. So it's wonderful that you have that word that triggers that, as you say, the bodily physical sensation. And that is so important. It is so important, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, and and what's the other one? That's the other word. Remember. Remember, yeah, yeah, to bring you back. 
And so you're, but you're still looking for equanimity. You're looking for, do, do you have a felt sense of what it means as opposed to the word that attaches to that feeling? Have a felt sense of what, you, you described gratitude as being bubbling up. Yes, and that's what I've not felt. So you haven't developed a sense of, um, like, when I feel equanimity, my body feels this way, or I feel this happening. So you're really searching for that experience, not just the word, but to know that within yourself, what equanimity feels like. That's what you're searching for, right? Yeah. That's an important point there, that we're not really searching for words. You know? We're just like, and all the things we felt, where is equanimity in there? Yeah. That'll be a beautiful moment when you realize. I found it interesting that, uh, I'm not sure I could repeat this well, but mm-hmm. you mentioned in communists the joy Mm-hmm. was something that happened on the way to something else. In everyday life, we sometimes think of joy as the goal. Mm-hmm. But here it's uh, in passing and yes. in the process. That's correct. And um, again, in the Anapanasati method, the, the jo- joy is, is um, you know, it's, it's posited as a, a, as a feeling that energizes you sort of early in the process is actually the fourth step. You've, once you've calmed your mind and body just by watching your breath and your body, the instruction is to try to find that sense of joy, which could be the bubbling up, you know, um, and to use the breath to suffuse that through. And then following that is a, a sense of um, not, not an energetic uh, joy, which is that first sense of like, when you breathe in sometimes, can you feel it? like? There's a kind of a energetic filling that's joy. And then on the out-breath, it's more of a relaxed, relaxed contentedness. And th- these are stages that one feels that one is directed to draw one's attention to that's part of this natural process of calming the mind and the body. And it's also what the Buddha is talking about during that, during, um, that passage that I read about um, rapture leading to uh, serenity, leading to, um, let's see here, joy leading to rapture, leading to serenity, leading to pleasure, leading to a centered mind, leading to um, phenomena becoming manifest. So, you know, these words all sound the same in the English language, or very close to the same, joy, contentment, rapture, right? But the teachings are saying to, to direct our attention inward, to see if we can discriminate more carefully about what's really in us, um, in, in, in felt sensation, especially on the positive side, that these are actually feelings that arise as the mind becomes calmer and becomes more centered. So you're absolutely right. Joy is just, it's, it's an early uh, kind of energetic, um, pleasant feeling, but it calms down and it leads to a calmer, calmer mind. So why don't we just end by sitting for a couple of minutes, letting the words go.
So tonight we've reflected on the Buddha's last teachings, in which he explained that after he was gone, those who wanted to know him could go to the teachings, that he would exist in the form of the teachings. These teachings could be a centering, guiding refuge. these practices we might access the calm, peaceful qualities in our hearts to make ourselves more calm and peaceful and to be the cause and condition for widening calm and peace amongst those we know rippling out beyond to those we don't, to beings known and unknown. May all beings experience calm. May all beings be without suffering. Thanks for coming, everybody.